It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this is what I would call a doozy uh, message uh, in every regard. So much of what I have been building towards uh, in this entire series, and this, this is the 35th episode, has been to get to this. This would be a climactic moment in World War I. And uh, I feel like it's only appropriate that I would dedicate this uh, to uh, one of our students here, Karina Zimmerman. Is Karina here? Uh, she's not here yet. Uh, and, uh, but you can tell her about it later since it, her name is in it. And technically, this is her birthday too. So what a unique way. I wish, I wish the name Zimmerman was represented a little better in this, but she'll have to carry the weight of that in this generation. <laughs> but part 35, the Zimmerman blunder. Not speaking of Karina Zimmerman, by the way, uh, but Arthur Zimmerman. Uh, this is, I, I, just even trying to work on the title for this one was hard because I wanted, should I call it the telegram? Should I call it the Zimmerman telegram? I mean, I've been building towards what's called historically the Zimmerman telegram for a long time. And I think you guys will enjoy this. I'm packing a lot in and I probably am gonna go over even normal time allotment for this because this is such an epic, uh, momentous message. So there's our guy, Arthur Zimmerman. I finished uh, one of my last messages uh, describing him. Zimmerman was a big, ruddy, good-humored, square-headed bachelor of 50 years with blue eyes, reddish blonde hair, and bushy mustache. That doesn't really say much, does it? But he has just taken over as war minister for Germany. He's a very likable fellow, but he's a little more devious than the Americans realize. So let's go through sort of a cast of characters for this. We have Woodrow Wilson, who is the current president of the United States at this juncture as we're going. He's just been reelected at the end of 1916, and so he's headed into his second term of office as we head into 1917. Uh, Colonel House, uh, I forgot his first name, Frederick, but they, he went by Colonel House. This is sort of like a chief of staff character for Woodrow Wilson, and he's going to be a, a character in our story as well. Uh, Robert Lansing is a secretary of state, and he's going to be a character, uh, and all of these guys are interesting studies in and of themselves. Walter Page is the ambassador of America to Great Britain, and he's going to play a role in this uh, unfolding. Admiral Hall, who I've introduced in the past, Room 40, he's, he's the guy that's in a sense going to start up and set up what we know as the British uh, intelligence uh, network, you know, that spy network that is so uh, famous. This is the guy behind it. Uh, and <clears throat> Agent H. Uh, and so, so if you're getting this via podcast, you don't get to see the picture of Agent H, uh, which is just a blacked out face because no one actually knows who he is. So the climax of the story. Now I'm putting a window of time here and the events that I'm going to share with you in this, what I'm going to call the climax of the story, because that's an arguable point. There's many climax, climactic moments in World War I and yet, I think most people would agree, this is the turning point. This is when things begin to shift. There's going to be some moments in 1918 where it looks like it's going to reverse, and, but we haven't gotten there yet. But this, and I'm going to give a window of time, February 1st through April 6th. And in this time, there are other things that I'm not going to say yet, but other things taking place in the world and other countries that are equally momentous. And so a lot is happening in this little juncture of history. The State Department cable is open to the Germans, December of 1916. So Woodrow Wilson, I've described him to you as the pacifist president, probably the only pacifist president we've ever had, and probably the man who uh, declared war more often than any president uh, in history, which is quite an amazing thought. Uh, and yet he does not want to get into war. He wants peace. He wants his uh, his remembrance to be that he brought peace to the earth, okay? This is like a, a deep thing for him. And so he refuses to believe when the allies respond back, when the central powers respond back and say, no, we refuse your peace deal. It, it is not acceptable to us. He still believes that he can bring peace. And so we're at a, a key moment in December of 1916 
And Colonel House, who I showed you the picture of, he's, he's been working diplomatic relations with the Germans, and the Germans are just sort of playing him like a fiddle. And so Colonel House and Woodrow Wilson are going to do something unprecedented. As a neutral country, they're going to allow their diplomatic uh, connection, their cable communication uh, over to Europe to be used by the Germans, and the Germans can encrypt and encode their, their messages as long as they're about peace talks, and as long as they are just going back and forth saying what Woodrow Wilson is saying to them, and they can pass it back and forth, and they can trust that the Germans, of course, are going to be well-behaved with this uh, cable. And so as a result, uh, that's, I mean, you, you just sort of want to look at Woodrow Wilson and go, buddy, I know you love peace, and I love that about you. However, not everyone does. Uh, and so it's a very interesting time. And of course, the Americans didn't know this at the time. And, but there was one man, the Secretary of State, who had to approve every cable going in and out, had to go through his hands, and it's Robert Lansing. And Robert Lansing is not happy about this. However, he is going to submit to his president, who is giving him a direct order to allow the Germans to do this. And he's like, this is this is a, we're a neutral country. This violates all the laws of a neutral country. And then w Wilson says, but this is for peace. So here's Barbara Tuckman weighing in on the situation in the book, The Zimmerman Telegram. What Colonel Edward House had arranged and what the president authorized was permission for the German government to send messages in its own cipher between Bernstorff, who's the German ambassador in America, and Berlin, that's the capital of Germany, in both directions, over the State Department cable. It was an American version of the Swedish roundabout, but quicker, for the Swedish route took a week for message and reply. Accepted neutral practice, since America is a neutral country, would have required a belligerent's messages to be submitted in clear language for tra transmission in American code. In fact, Colonel House, with the president's consent, committed the American government to the irregular, not to say simple-minded, arrangement of transmitting a belligerent's message. A belligerent is, an, is, it a, is a person who's at war with someone else, and a neutral country is not allowed to participate in helping them. So Sweden was already in violation of helping the Germans in communication. Now the Americans are actually helping the Germans. But Woodrow Wilson is so kind-hearted, he actually believes that the Germans are interested in negotiating peace. So he's like, this is a good purpose for it. So not to say simple-minded, arrangement of transmitting a belligerent's message in a code not known to itself. The Americans don't have any idea what the Germans are saying backward and forward. Secretary Robert Lansing, who had to be informed because his department would be required to play the role of post office, was shocked to the cell of his legal soul, even to rebellion. And each time the method was used, he had to be personally ordered by the president, who was conscious only of the rectitude of his goal and careless of his methods to comply. Wilson was perhaps less sensitive to a neutral's duties than to a neutral's rights. He considered himself, speaking of Wilson, justified in ignoring the obligations of neutrality because his mind was fixed on stopping the war. Aware that this object was noble, he did not imagine that anyone in Germany might make ignoble use of the channel he had opened up for them. Lansing's objections to the procedure as unneutral, he brushed aside as petty and legalistic. So neither Wilson nor anyone else seems to have asked at any time for assurances that the incoming telegrams from Germany should also be confined to the subject of peace. Wilson presupposed honest intentions on the part of the German Foreign Office. With the barometer needle quivering close to war, that was incautious. But Wilson was his own barometer. So now, I think we've hopefully caught everyone up to speed of where we're at as far as I've had multiple messages that have led to this. You know, so we have uh, the, the meddling of William where we begin to see the Germans involved in trying to distract the Americans. We had the 21-gun salute, which was the embroilment of America in Mexican affairs. We had the rise of Poncho, which is the distractions along the border. Anything to keep America off balance. Then we also dipped our, our toe into the issues of Room 40, Agent H, to sort of begin to build a picture here that is all going to begin to coalesce. But we're at a critical juncture where Wilson has sort of dug his heels in. There's a good portion of the United States that wants to go to war right now, and they actually don't trust the Germans. And 
but something is going to begin to trigger into place that is going to cause even a greater uproar. So here's Woodrow Wilson. It's spoken in confidence to Colonel House early January 1917. There will be no war. This country does not intend to become involved in war. It would be a crime against civilization for us to go into it. Okay, obviously something has to have happened for Woodrow Wilson to sign up for a crime against civilization, right? And yet Woodrow Wilson's reasoning for this is that they would be, they're the only nation that could possibly do something to bring together these parties that are opposing each other. It's a reasonable thought, and I'm not actually against his thought. And so it's just a fascinating uh, unfolding of events. If you stick yourself in Woodrow Wilson's place, which I try and do, and I think, well, what would I be in favor of? I'd be in favor of peace as well. Would I want my nation to throw themselves in and lose potentially millions of men? I don't think so. Uh, why do we try and come up with a different way of engaging this war and helping the situation to a conclusion? So at the castle of Pless, the edge of Poland, January 9th, 1917. So we're going to go on a little vacation together, a little, uh, you know, uh, tour, a trip to the northern edges of uh, Germany, and we're going to visit the castle of Pless, which is sort of the central intelligence of the Germans, and this is where the meeting place is. On January 9th, 1917, at the castle of Pless on the edge of Poland, where supreme headquarters were maintained in 300 rooms served by liveried footmen, a momentous meeting was called not to reach a decision, but to seal one already made. Uh-oh, what's going on in Germany right now, guys? A month earlier, the Supreme High Command had reached their own decision to use the U-boat, even if it brought America in against them. Now, do you guys remember I brought up the idea of the U-boat? And I said, this is going to become a critical issue in 1917. The Germans have to do something. The Germans are on the ropes and this is the best time, according to all of their decision makers in the military, to make their move. Some of them believe it could be the last card they have to play. But if they play it, there could be consequences. Because if they bring the U-boats in, which is their secret tactic, because they could shut down British shipping and starve out the island of Britain, France is almost ready to fall. So if Great Britain is, is strangled, then guess what? France can't stand alone which means Germany could somehow turn the tables on this. Right now, it looks like they're losing, but if they were to snuff out German or British shipping and starve out the island and get Britain to raise the white flag, they could win this thing. However, Wilson has already threatened that if they release their U-boats, he'll enter the war. But do you believe him? Do you believe Wilson? I mean, just think if you're thinking like a German. Wilson is afraid of war. He's a coward, is what everyone in Germany, of course, everyone around the world is actually thinking. In fact, in America, they're thinking it too. Theodore Roosevelt is barking in the streets that exact message, calling Wilson yellow and a coward. And so I think it's a pretty well-established thought that most people think that Wilson is afraid of war. And, you know, obviously there's a debate about that in history, but I would probably guess that Wilson just doesn't really want war at all costs. He wants to save his country from it. Whether or not he's afraid of it, that's a, that's a different question. A month earlier, I'm starting at the beginning of this quote, a month earlier the Supreme High Command had reached their own decision to use the U-boat, even if it brought America in against them. They calculated on the U-boats bringing victory within six months and on the impossibility of America's recruiting, organizing, training, and transporting an army within that time. If we could do this within six months, this is the German thinking, America could not get their game on in time and get all their troops over here to make any difference in the war, which means we could win the war before America even arrives. Gotcha. And this is the German mindset in January of 1917. So Admiral Edvard von Kappel the secretary of the German Navy is going to stand up in Pless and he's going to present the thought. And that is this, from the military point of view, the assistance to the allies, which will result from the entrance of the United States into the war will amount to nothing. So he's already concluded as the expert on the topic that even if America gets into the war, it will not help the allies in the least because we will have already destroyed them. 
and everyone sort of gives the, you know, the polite clap in the room. It's like, well, well said, well said. That the moral effect of America's entrance would encourage the Allies to hold out long enough to upset the German timetable was a possibility which everyone was conscious of, but no one mentioned. In other words, you may be able to starve out Great Britain in six months, but if they knew America was in the war, don't you think they would do whatever they could to hold on until America could arrive? No one wanted to talk about that. The proposal at Pless. So we're at the castle of Pless, and Admiral von Holzendorf stands up. This is very uh, interesting because at this gathering at Pless, we have detailed transcripts of all conversations of what was said. It is so interesting to read. I mean, detail, like who's speaking and, and they're talking back and forth. And so I have to skip all of it. That's the unfortunate thing about a series like this. It's like, you think I'm going deep. Actually, I'm just skimming along the surface. So Admiral von Holzendorf, on the same day at Pless, is going to say this. He's speaking of unrestricted U-boat warfare and describing what it means. It means that every enemy and neutral ship, so every enemy ship and every neutral ship found in the war zone is to be sunk without warning. If we fail to make use of this opportunity, which as far as can be foreseen is our last, I can see no way to end the war so as to guarantee our future as a world power. On its part, I guarantee that the U-boat will lead to victory. And again, they forget the polite clapping in the room. Well said, well said, Admiral. Holzendorf, that's the guy that was just on the screen. By the way, if you're getting this via podcast, you're missing some really good pictures, some really good beards and mustaches. Holzendorf proposed that his U-boats could sink 600,000 tons a month and force England to capitulate before the next harvest. It was all there on the, time, on the table before him in, two massive, in, in the massive 200-page memorandum drawn up by the Admiralty, complete with charts of tonnage entering and clearing British ports. Tables showing freight rates, cargo space, rationing systems, comparisons with last year's harvest, statistics on everything from the price of cheese and the calorie content of the British breakfast, down to the yardage of imported wool in ladies' skirts. With mathematical precision, the German admiralty had worked out the month, almost the day when England would be forced to give in. Classic German right there. It's very impressive, you have to admit. They have it all figured out. I mean, they have a 200-page memorandum on this. Obviously, they're right. The decision, and then I put underneath that, that would change everything. Many people have argued if the Germans didn't make this decision, the war turns out opposite. Now, I don't want to somehow give something away in saying that. I'm trying not to. But something else has happened in a different sector of the world that they don't know is going to happen. It's going to happen after they do this. And if they had just waited a little longer, they wouldn't have done this because this is going to have catastrophic effect on them. Kaiser William II, or Wilhelm uh, II, at Pless is going to officially seal the deal. I order that unrestricted submarine warfare be launched with the utmost vigor on the 1st of February, 1917. Okay, now we have, you'll notice when I said the climactic time period it was February 1st through April 6th, mm-hmm. now you have the first starter package of it. They're supposed to announce to the United States uh, and other uh, neutral powers on January 31st. So they're going to hold off until right before it to announce that they're doing this and then release it the next day. So Theobald Bethman Holweg, who is the one guy standing against doing it, okay, he's the uh, German imperial chancellor. After the fateful decision, he's sitting in a chair despondent and someone else comes up to him and says, what are you, sick? And he says, he shakes his head no, and he says, and I can't say it in the German, right? Finis Germany. Germany is finished. In other words, he felt it in his bones. This is the death knell to Germany. What we have just decided is going to awaken the sleeping giant. So Arthur Zimmerman, the German expert on all things America. He is. I mean, he thinks of himself as the expert on all things America. So he's telling everyone how it's going to be. This is how America will respond. I know Wilson. This is how Wilson's going to respond. This is how the American people are going to respond. So there's a lot of Germans in America. There's a lot of German Americans with a hyphen in between. And he is, I mean, they're convinced that the German Americans are still siding with them. 
And many of them have been up to this point because they actually believe the German cause. They actually believe that Germany is doing what they say they're doing. So this is Zimmerman, uh, Zimmerman's perspective as written by Barbara Tuckman. Zimmerman had given much thought to the possibility of enticing Mexico and Japan to attack the United States. He was sure that America could never become importantly active in Europe if her existing entanglement in Mexico were swollen into full-scale war and if her fear of Japan's attacking from behind were given new reason for urgency. He intended to see to it that both these things happened. So what you see on the screen there is exactly the basis of what we know as the Zimmerman telegram. So we, we started by talking about the meddling of William. Now we have the meddling of Arthur. He is actually going to attempt to create a war between Mexico, America, and Japan and America. He is actually trying to incite a war that will keep America distracted because the only threats in the U-boat uh, unleashing is America. And of course, most people have discounted it. They're not going to matter anyways, right? But Zimmerman wants an insurance policy, and he wants to create war for America on a different front. So the art of Zimmerman, cultivating the false sense of confidence. So Zimmerman is going to host the American ambassador in Berlin to a sumptuous feast. And he is going to do whatever he can to create the illusion. This is literally right before he's going to do all of this to create the illusion of friendship because he knows he's going to talk to Wilson and then Wilson's going to buy it and Wilson's going to say, see, Germany's our friend. They're wanting to work towards peace. So here's Arthur Zimmerman. This is from his speech at the feast. I'm calling it the feast. On January 14th, 1917. This is speaking to the American ambassador, speaking to America as a whole. Our personal friendship encourages me in the assurance that we can continue to work in a frank, open manner, putting all our cards upon the table and subdue every difficulty together. You can almost feel like there was a hug and a kiss after it. Straight from this, what I'm calling a farcical feast, actually that's a Barbara Tuckman uh, statement, straight from the farcical feast, which means it was a farce, it was a joke, it was totally a play act, of good fellowship, Zimmerman heads out to send a telegram. He makes this show and then goes to send a telegram. So here's how Barbara Tuckman describes it. Zimmerman on January 15th intended to send the proposal to Mexico in a letter by way of Washington to Mexico aboard the merchant submarine Deutschland. So he was going to originally take this message that he is going to give ultimately to Carranza, who's the president of Mexico, He's going to deliver it via the submarine, and so it's going to be hand-delivered, right? However, uh, it was scheduled to depart uh, again on January 15th, but on, at the last moment, its trip was canceled. The instructions would have to go by telegram. Zimmerman decided that the telegram should go by the most direct way possible, and what more direct than the channel put at his disposal by the Americans themselves? So he is going to, instead of using the Swedish roundabout, which takes a week, he's going to choose to use the State Department cable, and he's going to use his enciphered and coded you know, system that the Germans have cooked up, and he's going to send it using America's cable system through the hands of Americans. He is literally taking advantage of Wilson's trusting nature, and he is going to pass along a message to Carranza in Mexico to basically bring war against the United States through America's cable. Okay, I don't know if you guys can see something that might offend an American somewhere along the line here. The idiotic Yankees, as Papin called them, had given it to him for, to use for peace. But that was simply more of Mr. Wilson's humbug. Germany was not to be fooled by such cant. If Wilson chose to hand them a key... It would serve him justly, and struck Zimmerman is entirely fitting to use the Yankee key to rob the Yankee roost. So we have a threat. Now remember, there are a few people in America that know Germany's a con. They know it. However, Wilson believes them. He trusts them. And he wants to trust them because his entire peace plan hinges upon them being trustworthy. Pride cometh 
before the fall. I just decided to stick that in. More as a foreshadow. You know, it's like a literary technique. You just sort of stick something in. Just a side comment. Like, hey, by the way, have you ever heard the statement, pride cometh before a fall? You know, just sort of let it linger in the air. When Zimmerman decided upon this stroke, America was not an enemy. The U-boat decision risked making her one. But Zimmerman himself, as well as many of the high command, believed there was a good chance that Wilson might swallow this challenge with no more than an angry note or two, as he had done before. So, if it's true that Wilson still, even after the U-boat challenge, may just get upset, send a note or two, then you should just leave it be. Let sleeping dogs lie. Instead, he is going to use the Secretary of State's cable from Europe to America to actually deliver a challenge of war through Mexico. And the Americans can't interpret it. They don't have the encryption. They don't have the cipher. They don't know how to uh, decode it. But there is someone who can. And we've already introduced that someone, that party, and that's why I brought up that, because that's all going to come into this as we move forward. At this moment, it was of the utmost importance to Germany to refrain from doing anything further to provoke America. Zimmerman's choice of telegraph route could hardly have been more inappropriate under the circumstances, yet it was perhaps predestined by the German character. The fatal German assumption of superiority, superior rights, superior cleverness led him straight into it. To the superior person, it is permitted to deceive fools. It is not ungentlemanly of him. It is expected. It is nature. It is law. You see, what, he, what Barbara Tuckman is saying is when you think of yourself as superior, it becomes a law that you, it's not ungentlemanly to treat someone like a fool and to deceive them. They're just a fool. And you think so much higher than they do, you're in a different plane. And so all of the fools down below just get what they deserve, which is to be fooled. And so it's interesting because all throughout this war, Barbara Tuckman is correct. Now, being German, and I know a lot of you are German too, we could really be offended by these things. I mean, if we were easily offended, this is a great opportunity for all of us, right? However, most of us that are German really don't want to identify with Germany in this period of time and say, yes, that's my heritage. In other words, we'd like to distance ourselves and say, I don't know them. Uh, well, aren't you German? Well, I don't know. I mean, we'd have to do one of those tests, you know, DNA tests. I'm not exactly sure. I mean, my mom said it, but maybe, you know, we never tested her either. And yet, what it is, is it's the truth. Every bent that we could have, even ethnicity-wise, has leanings and vulnerabilities. And that is a truth. The Germans have a bent and have a vulnerability. Not all of them walked in this. I mean, there is Bethman Holwig is like doing the exact opposite. He's like, you guys are crazy. And yet there is a superiority like we have this, Bethman Holwig. You know, just sit down in your seat. We'll take care of this. It's interesting because pride really does blind you. And what I want to do in this is to have you recognize that the devil is very similar to this. Now, I, I, I hate likening the devil to the Germans. I mean, that's just terrible, right? Uh, and However, in this storyline, there's a lot of similarities, and it's because of arrogance. The Zimmerman Telegram, and that's what it's historically known as. If you want, I mean, this entire book from Barbara Tuckman is called The Zimmerman Telegram. And so it is a very, very well-known item in history, even though most of us today have no clue about it. Most of us today don't know anything about World War I, and let alone about the Zimmerman Telegram. So I'm going to read you the Zimmerman Telegram. Isn't it sort of fun that we could actually have this? I mean, literally, this was encrypted and encoded, and it was totally secret, and no one was ever supposed to see this but a very few people on earth, and we can read it. Isn't that just fun? So this is to Count von Bernstorff, uh, who is the German ambassador to America. January 17th, 1917, it was actually given to him by the American State Department in good faith, believing it was a communication about peace talks. And this is what it said. This is Zimmerman writing. We intend to begin unrestricted submarine warfare on the 1st of February. We shall endeavor in spite of this to keep the United States neutral. In the event of this not succeeding, we make Mexico a proposal of alliance on the following basis. Make war together, make peace together. Generous financial support and an understanding on our part that Mexico is to reconquer the lost territory in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. 
The settlement in detail is left to you. You will inform the president of Mexico of the above most secretly as soon as the outbreak of war with the United States is certain and add the suggestion that he should, on his own initiative, invite Japan to immediate adherence and at the same time mediate between Japan and ourselves. Please call the Mexican president's attention to the fact that the unrestricted employment of our submarines now offers the prospect of compelling England to make peace within a few months. Acknowledge receipt. Zimmerman. So there is actually going to be another Zimmerman telegram that I'm not going to read to you, but Zimmerman doesn't want to wait to make sure America is not going to enter the war or just even wait. He's going to say, give this to Carranza, because originally, if you read that, it's wait until America is you know, declaring war. Instead, a few days after this, he's going to say, just move it forward. I don't like waiting. And tell Carranza, we want to start this. It doesn't matter what America decides. The f to flip the script. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase. It's a, it's a statement that all say every now and then because it, it, it enunciates something. And it's actually a behavior of the kingdom of heaven. But if you flip the script, that means you are changing everything around. Your good guy is losing. Now suddenly everything flips and suddenly your good guy is in a great situation. It's like, how did that happen? It's usually what happens at the very end of a story, not not when you want it to happen in the movie. It always has to wait until the very last minute when you're you know, dying you know, and withering up in tears, and then suddenly the, flip, the script flips. And this is what it means. To reverse the usual or existing positions in a situation to do something unexpected or revolutionary. This is actually how the kingdom of heaven works in our life. God seems to be a really good storyteller. And there is something about story, even if you were to study it, that you know, a great story seems to be to put your character in the most impossible situation and then see him get out of it. And that's the most enjoyable story. And of course, many of us like, love watching it in a movie or love reading it in a book. We don't like living it. It's like, God, I, I mean, how about someone else has a good story? I could just observe their good story. I don't need to participate in a good story. And yet you need to recognize that you've been brought into a great story. And if you recognize that you are a key character in a story and that when you go into difficulty, it's actually an advantage because it proves your character. It proves what is in you. And every great storyline is going to show the development of a character, a hero, and is going to lift out their behavior so that you can marvel at it in how they work through difficulty. Usually they fail at the beginning and then they begin to overcome and then they you know, have their Rocky montage scene and they, they get their game on. And then in the end, they, the, script, the script flips, and suddenly that which was a negative turns into a triumph. Great story right there. And what we see is that God is in this business. So I'm going to call it the flip the script principle. God uses the enemy's evil scheming to be the tool that awakens us. Isn't that a great, I mean, think about how brilliant that is. So the enemy is scheming, and if you're, you know, it's your life, and you, you, you find out that the enemy is scheming, you're like, what? God, how could you allow that? Well, do you see the effect of it? That's what awakened you. You see, God leverages even what the enemy means for evil into a positive advantage in our soul. When you catch that, it actually changes everything for you. God uses the enemy's blunder to bring about his ends in our lives. The enemy doesn't have breaks on sin. It's one of the fascinating qualities about the enemy is he doesn't have self-control. That's a fruit of the Spirit. If the enemy had self-control, he would be a lot more devious than he is. But he cannot stop himself. He's like a Zimmerman in that situation. It's like, I'm going to use, I need to get this telegram there as soon as possible. And he is going to hastily move forward and do something that actually is going to create a crisis for not just him, but all of Germany. The enemy does that all the time. The enemy is hasty and arrogant and thinks that he is smarter than everyone else in the room. And as a result, he blunders often and always. He overplays his hand is the way I describe it. Leslie and I will be looking at each other and we're like, well, the enemy just overplayed his hand. Now we know exactly what he's up to. And he does it all the time, guys. You just need to have your eyes wide open to see it. God uses the enemy's nasty workings to strengthen our spiritual lives. Isn't that an amazing thing that God could use even enemy junk, 
enemy harassment, enemy difficulty that he is manufacturing to harm us and to hinder us and to disable us into our strength and to make us actually fulfill our calling? God uses our naivety, our fumbles, our failures as the raw materials for our spiritual reviving. Now think about this. This is a really hard one to swallow at times. But even our mistakes actually get translated when we bring them to God into advantage in our soul. And Paul is going to actually enunciate this multiple times, and he's going to have to clarify, because then people, he says, so, as some people are asking, should I then go on sinning that grace may abound? I mean, if it's true that my mistakes are leading to advantage, well, maybe I should just keep making mistakes. And Paul is going to cut that one off at the pass. However, it is an amazing thought to think that even our mistakes get transferred into our advantage when they are given to God. So here's Romans 8, 28, which is the ultimate summary of that. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. So more on this principle as we move forward. Room 40 is listening. Now, room 40 has tapped into all wireless communications. They're capturing them all. They have 800 people at this time that are actually decoding. They have learned the cipher of the Germans. They have the German code book. They're in possession of a lot that no one else in the world knows about. They've also tapped into the American state cable, transatlantic cable. Uh, They're not supposed to be tapping into that, but they can't help themselves. And so they find Zimmerman's communication. And yet they can't tell America that they have it because they were tapping into America's cable (laughs) to get it, and yet this would have a great impact on America. So when the U-boats are released, Admiral Hall just sort of sticks it in his safe. And they're like, we don't know what to do with this. And Admiral Hall is like, I'll take care of it. And Admiral Hall's sweating bullets. He doesn't know what to do with this because this is the game changer right here. This would get America into the war. And yet, how do he can't expose room 40. So he can't show that room 40 intercepted it and then decoded it. Otherwise, the Germans would know that they have the code and they would change their code. So what is Admiral Hall supposed to do? So here's uh, Barbara Tuckman. Zimmerman did not know that room 40 had broken the German code. But had the Germans been, been, been less given to underestimating the enemy, he might have thought twice before using the American cable route to propose a military alliance against America, just in case someone might be listening. So Robert Lansing, this is the Secretary of State who's very much against the fact that the, the cable of the United States, the State Department cable, is being used for German communications. Not only are they neutral, but he doesn't trust Germany. So he writes in his diary, I have multiple diary entries that I can actually add to this, which is really fun. Robert Lansing, on January 27th, remember U-boat warfare is going to be released on February 1st. The Zimmerman telegram was sent on the 17th, but America doesn't know about it, right? Great Britain knows, well, Room 40 knows. I mean, even the government in Great Britain doesn't know. Only Admiral Hull and a few decoders, code breakers, know. So he says, I hope that those blundering Germans will blunder soon. The plea to reconsider. So this wasn't all Germans that actually agreed. Not only was Bethman Holweg back at the Castle of Pless, you know, he was the one arguing, and finally he just gave in and said, well, it looks like the momentum of the room is swinging towards the U-boat, so I'll let, let it go in that direction. But then the German ambassador in America, in Washington, D.C., his name is Count von Bernstorff, is going to make a plea on, what is it, January 28th. Remember, U-boat warfare, unrestricted U-boat warfare is going to be February 1st. And he says, in spite of all statements to the contrary, American war resources are very great. It's like, you guys don't know what you're messing with. Now, remember, Pershing, General John Pershing has gone into Mexico to try and find uh, Pancho Villa, and it's been totally embarrassing. The American military looks idiotic right at this exact point. And so you have all your experts on America, right, back in Germany. They're like, these guys can't fight. And even if they came in, they're not going to be ready in time. And Bernstorff, who's on the ground in America, is like, you guys have no idea what you're dealing with here. You awake in America, and Germany dies. 
and which is ironically the story of World War II. I feel like I'm, you know, same, same story, second verse. February 1st, 1917, the U-Boat Declaration. The long-awaited challenge, fended off so often, had suddenly been flung in America's face. Aren't you interested to know how Woodrow Wilson's going to respond? I mean, Woodrow Wilson's peace, 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 peace. It doesn't matter what's in front of him. Peace, peace, peace. I believe them. I trust the Germans. They don't mean that. And now they've declared, look, we're going to release our U-boats. And they did. And Wilson's staring at this, but he's still struggling. So let's go through that. What's a pacifist to do? I mean, if you're a, if you're a pacifist, he's, he's a guy of principle. And he believes the best way to handle things is through diplomacy, not through arms. If you genuinely believe that, it makes sense that he is going to come up with every reason possible to not engage in war. Call this the testing of Woodrow Wilson. So this is spoken in confidence to Colonel House. Colonel House kept a very detailed diary, I think because he wanted to brag to history that he was in on all these decisions. Of course, he's not going to look so hot. What he's remembered for is opening up the, sec- the state uh, cable, uh, the American State Department cable to the Germans. That's what he's known for out of all of history. It's like the poor guy. Kept this great diary so we'd all be impressed, uh, but none of us really are. So Woodrow Wilson confides to him on February 1st and says, what shall I propose? I must go to Congress. What shall I say? He's a pacifist. He's been standing against this war the whole time. And he already is threatened that if the Germans release their U-boats, he'll declare war. What's he supposed to do? So here's what he says before Congress on February 2nd. It it would be wise to to do nothing. Okay, I don't know how you think that's going over in the United States. Well, it's a split because there's about half the United States is still like this. We don't want to get involved, but there's another half which is rather vocal, and you can just imagine if people want to go to war, that's a pretty vocal contingent, right? And if they're ready to fight someone, they're ready to fight their own government if necessary. Then they, they look at it, we're, we're cowards to the world. What are we doing? We can't say we're going to declare war and then not. It would be wise to, 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 to do nothing? What? Here's February 3rd before Congress. I refuse to believe, says Woodrow Wilson, that it is the intention of the German authorities to do in fact what they have warned us they will feel at liberty to do. Only actual overt acts on their part can make me believe it even now. He's not, he doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe the Germans are actually intending harm. He, no, 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 I don't believe that. So Arthur Zimmerman on the same day says this, as he's speaking to the German higher-ups, you will see everything will be all right. America will do nothing because Wilson is for peace and nothing else. Can't you feel the tension? I mean, this is a great movie right here. I mean, you're, you're seeing on both sides of the Atlantic, we can peek in to every part of the world and actually hear what they're thinking right now. Everyone wrote it down. This is a massive event because every, you know, the allies need America. Germany and the central powers are wanting America not to get in at all costs. Admiral Hall's dilemma. Remember our guy with the white hair that has this telegram in his safe? He has a dilemma. He holds in his safe the key to bring America into this war. Uh, What do you do with that? So here's what Barbara Tuckman says. Zimmerman's overt act still lay like an upthrown, it should be unthrown, hand grenade inside Admiral Hall's safe When the DNI, the Department of uh, National Intelligence, I believe, read the terms of Wilson's speech announcing the break with Germany, he realized that his heartfelt thank God on first hearing the news had been premature. The Americans were not coming in after all. Their president was still clutching neutrality with his eyes squeezed shut against Germany's explicit hostility. Unless and until we are obliged to believe it, is what Wilson had said. Unless and until we are obliged to believe it. Can you imagine how a Hall is feeling right now? Was it possible the man could still be in doubt? It looked as if it might be up to Admiral Hall to oblige him to believe it. All he had to do was pull the pin on the hand grenade and toss it in the American lap. Yet he did not. 
He could not move until certain arrangements he was making to conceal Room 40's possession of the code were complete. How does he communicate to the Americans without showing them that he tapped into their cable? Number one, that's a tricky one. How does he do it in such a way which would also not infer to the Germans that they have the ability to decode in Room 40? Ah, because he can't let that go, even though this is one of those situations in war where you actually consider letting the Germans even know, we've had your code this whole time, but you're going down because I'm getting the Americans in. Right? This is a tough one. The Hall Plan. Help America see Germany's dark side without revealing <clears throat> their own. <laughs> so listen to Hall's thoughts. Bernstorff, the German ambassador in America, was instructed to forward the Zimmerman telegram to Mexico. There's a few, you know, in the Zimmerman telegram, there's some caveats before and after, like instructions that I didn't read. And one of them is this. Bernstorff, the, the ambassador in Washington from Germany, is supposed to forward this to Eckhart in Mexico. Hall's thought too, he needed to get a copy of this transmission somehow, some way. So if I could, get, here's what Hall's thinking. If I could get a copy of the transmission from Bernsdorf to Mexico and I could show that my secret service or my intelligence network caught that, then we have the code to interpret that and we can let the Americans know we have the code. Then on American soil, they can decode it, which means it wasn't decoded in Great Britain. It was decoded in America but he needs to get his hands on a copy of that, which was sent Western Union. So how could he get his hands on the copy of uh, the telegram sent to a German envoy in Mexico? So he knows Bernstorff to Eckhart, the communication has been done, and he probably knows the date too, but how does he get his hands on it? Agent H. Oh, Agent H! The silent, mysterious hero of our tale. So H has a relationship with the Western Union Telegraph office. He, there's a character who he saved his life. And you know, there's so many mysteries around H and H, right? And yet he saved this man's life. And it's a, it's a pretty cool story. I don't have time to go into, but this man owes him something. And so when Hall communicates with H, shows him the direness of the situation, H does whatever it takes, and this guy obliges and gives him a copy. So, by the way, there's, there's Agent H. Uh, I know you guys were interested in looking at him again. So on February 10th, 1917, Admiral Hall received from Agent H a copy of Zimmerman's telegram as received by Eckhart in Mexico from Bernstorff in Washington. So this is what was needed to actually now bring to the United States. How to present the Zimmerman telegram so as to convince the Americans without revealing its source was a dilemma, which was still being thrashed out at the foreign office in almost daily conversation with Admiral Hull. On February 19th of 1917, the men in room 40, so remember, just as far as dates go, February 1st is when the, uh, the U-boats were released. We're in February 19th. Great Britain is falling to pieces because of the U-boats. I mean, this is a very, very tense situation, but they can't rush this. On February 19th, the men in room 40, after working for five weeks on a solution of the code for the missing passages, completed their decryptment of Zimmerman's telegram. It was decided that Hall himself should make the revelation to the American embassy. When Bell, Bell was the one that was in the office at the time, and so he's one of the foreign ambassadors, uh, the American foreign ambassador to England came to room 40 and was shown a copy of Zimmerman's telegram. He became the first of a long line of Americans whose immediate reaction was to pronounce the thing a fraud. Out of simple disbelief that anyone in his right mind would dare propose giving away a slice of the continental United States. Like, that is ridiculous. And most people are actually going to begin to think that this is something manufactured by the British government to get America into the war. I mean, think about it. It's like, hey, I know you guys really want us in. You got this unrestricted U-boat warfare. We're not getting in. There's a lot of ambassadors, though, that are on European side, you know, on the Allies' side on this, and they're wanting America to lean in this direction. So, and Bell's one of them. He's like, I don't know if anyone's going to believe this, but I sort of want to. So Walter Page is actually the function ambassador from America to Great Britain. 
And he is the one that's going to head up this communication with Hull of how he's going to communicate with Wilson. Wilson doesn't like this guy. He hasn't been reading any of his telegrams for about a year. And Wilson doesn't like reading anyone's telegrams. If he's not going to say what he wants, if they're not going to say what he wants to hear, he doesn't want to read it. And so Paige is in somewhat of an awkward situation of I need this to get into a place of importance in Wilson's life. So he's going to send a telegram alerting the U.S. State Department at 2 a.m., February 24th, 1917, and it says this, in about three hours, I shall send a telegram of great importance to the President and the Secretary of State. And that created quite a stir. When the foreign ambassador in Great Britain, because ironically, you know what Wilson thinks it's going to be? Peace. Like, Great Britain is finally willing to discuss peace. <laughs> so he's like leaning, he's like, yes. But it wasn't that. Though it seemed to Page that such a bomb had seldom been before thrown, he was not sure that even this would budge Wilson. However, Woodrow Wilson, when seeing it, has a little bit of the same disbelief, but then the British government and Page have already worked out a way of proving. They have the Western Union uh, telegram, they have, and they even tell Woodrow Wilson, you can check with Western Union and see it yourself. In, in Western Union's own files, that this was sent from Bernstorff to Eckhart. They're right, it's there. Western Union won't supply it at first. You're claiming federal law, isn't it funny? The President of the United States is asking you to do it, and they, won't, they refuse to do it. Finally, they're bent to the point where they release it, and this is Woodrow Wilson's response. Good Lord, good Lord. Isn't that a great quote in history? He's seen it for the first time. He's recognizing how serious this is. He has been duped. He has been lied to, probably a similar way that Neville Chamberlain felt when he realized that Hitler was a liar in World War II, because Neville Chamberlain had been over backwards to help uh, Hitler, it's like, peace, peace, and then finally it went too far, and Neville Chamberlain realized, this guy can't be trusted. Of course, Winston Churchill the whole time is like, uh-huh, that's right. So deeply did Wilson feel the German insult that he actually asked Page, who's the ambassador in Great Britain, to thank Balfour for information of such inestimable value and to convey his great appreciation of so marked an act of friendliness on the part of the British government. <laughs> I don't think he knew that they had hacked into their cable at the time. <laughs> the all-important authentication. We have a problem. I'm skipping so much of the story, which I'm really sad to do, and it's still a long message here. However, the American people are divided. And Congress is split right down the middle. There are some that are so fiery right now. And there's half of the American public that believes this is a forgery, a fraud. And so the Room 40 knows that they could prove it. They have actually hard evidence to show where it came from and how, and it wasn't them. However, they would have to expose their code, then they would have to expose the fact that they, are, they have access to all of these communications in order to do it. And so it's a very difficult situation. So here is how Barbara Tuckman said, the problem that haunted the Zimmerman telegram from the beginning, how to authenticate it. The strangest thing is going to happen because it's going to be authenticated, but not in the way that anyone would guess. They're going to go straight to Zimmerman and ask him if he sent it. Every politician in all of world history knows the right answer to that. No, I have no idea what you're talking about. What? Oh, that's a British, you know, connivance. Oh, Zimmerman must have believed that the Americans and the Brits were working together and that Wilson would have known he, and he was lying and the public would have known it too. The inexplicable blunder. Zimmerman steps up to the microphone. This is an incredible moment in history, guys. The startling confession. I cannot deny it. It is true. And suddenly, everyone in America unites. All he had to say was, this is bogus. That's all he had to say. And one of the greatest ways that it is described is all the German Americans, they skipped over the hyphen and they went straight to American. And they became Americans that day. This is no longer a hyphenated country. This is America. That quote did it. Isn't that an amazing thing? This moment in history, right there, you see it on the screen, Arthur Zimmerman called the Zimmer, I'm calling it the Zimmerman blunder, right? I mean, how do you explain it? Now, I like the fact that he's telling the truth. 
However, that's not a normal quality of Arthur Zimmerman. You know, so it, as a result, it wasn't really a confession. He must have had a different thought process that thought it was already obvious, and if he did lie, it would only come back to haunt him at a greater level. Zimmerman's admission shattered the indifference with which three-quarters of the United States had regarded the war until that moment. The nation sat up and gasped. They mean us. Nothing since the outbreak of war had so openly conveyed a deliberately hostile intent toward Americans, and nothing had so startled the opinion across the country. So let's look at this flip the script principle. God uses the enemy's evil scheming to be the tool that awakens us. God uses the enemy's blunder to bring about his ends in our lives. God uses the enemy's nasty working to strengthen our spiritual lives. God uses our naivety, our fumbles, our failures as the raw materials of our spiritual reviving. It's an incredible thought when you get it to recognize that no matter where you're at today, the enemy could have been heaping a whole bunch of junk on your life and all of that can be turned into good. Every bit of it. And then the other side, when the enemy con condemns you and says, hey, this wasn't me, this was you. You're the one that heaped a whole bunch of junk in your life. Uh-huh. Flip the script. You know that God will even take that and use it to strengthen your life if you give it to him. If you hold on to it and go into self-pity and you know, morose and, uh, about it and you just allow the devil to bury you in condemnation, yeah, there's no hope for that. However, if you're a believer... And you rise up to your Savior and say, Lord, I have a mess on my hands. He will take that mess and convert it into a profound picture of his grace in your life, which has caused people in history to wonder, wait a minute, if God takes my sin and leverages it into a greater grace in my life, maybe it's not that bad of an idea to sin. And Paul has to address that. Most of you have never had that thought. <laughs> However, that was a thought when the gospel was first being purveyed across the world. The people are trying to understand grace. They're saying, God can even take this mistake and use it? Yes. Give it to him. Well, then what if I just made more mistakes? This is like a manufacturing plant here. I could create a whole bunch of mistakes and God could turn it into triumph. And Paul has a response to that. So here's his response. Meginomai. I know it makes a lot of sense to you, doesn't it? That's Koine Greek. Make it oh my! With an exclamation mark next to it. It means, God forbid! It also translates to, certainly not! Or, no way! Or, you've got to be kidding! Not on your life! Okay, you, you can put in your uh, filler for that. However, it's a very strong denial of something. Like, no, 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 no! And that's what make it oh my! Is. And this is Paul's response. And he's going to use this response in a similar context, oh, I don't know, about 15 times in the New Testament. Very interesting. Most of us have never seen this statement because in different translations, they'll oftentimes say, like, certainly not. God forbid. They'll change it. But the one benefit of the King James is it oftentimes stays stable in its translation. It goes, God forbid, God forbid, God forbid. So you can just search God forbid in the King James and you get them all, right? So here's a great example of it. Romans 3, 5 through 8. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? And I, I almost want to say, whoa, stop right there. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, most of us have never even come to that thought. It's like, whoa, that even sounds like a bad thought to have. That my unrighteousness somehow demonstrates the righteousness of God. Well, that's because of faith. It's not just that unrighteousness in and of itself declares the righteousness of God. It's unrighteousness that turns. And that unrighteousness, when, when it turns to the grace of God, when it turns to a Savior, is ac actually turns into a picture of triumph. And everyone in the world could say, look what God did. He brought righteousness out of that unrighteousness. That is an extraordinary statement. So Paul says, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Megin, oh my! God forbid, certainly not. No, 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 no. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God is increased through my, through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? In other words, here Paul's saying, if I lie and... As a result, the truth of God increases in and through my lie. Well, wasn't my lie good? Your lie is still bad. The fact that God will take a liar 
and transform him into a picture of redemption is a symbol of God's nature and grace, but it does not mean that we continue to stay a liar. Why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. And then we have another illustration of this in Romans 5. This is right at the end of Romans 5 into the beginning of Romans 6. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So when sin increases, what increases all the more? Grace. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, because it seems like when sin is there, grace increases all the more. And yet, uh, there is an answer on the screen, guys. Make it, oh my! Certainly not! God forbid! No, 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 no! That isn't how we think as believers. The fact that God redeems, the fact that God can take Wilson's good-hearted attitude, which is totally off base, right? He's missing it, and we all see it, but he still means well. When he changes his position, all that Zimmerman has been doing, conniving, all that William was meddling in, all that was going on is going to be turned upside down. The script is going to be flipped. God is going to take what an enemy meant for evil and flip it. Exercising the may genomai. Should Wilson then go on allowing the Germans to use our American transatlantic cable for sending their encrypted and encoded telegrams? Same question. The fact that, the fact that the Zimmerman's going to use that cable and it's going to turn on his head and it's going to turn against him and awaken the Americans, does that mean we should still allow the Germans to continue to communicate using it? Make it, oh my! That's ridiculous, right? And that's precisely what Paul is saying. The fact that God turns this for good doesn't mean you actually reason, oh, we should keep allowing Zimmerman to use it. Should Wilson then go on attending the Germans' farcical feasts and believe in their overtures of peace, brotherhood, and goodwill? Make it, oh my! Should Wilson then continue to negotiate peace with the Germans? Make it, oh my! God forbid! Should Wilson then continue to excuse America from this war? Meginomai. You see, this is the right application of the Meginomai. You see, when God has shown you grace, when God has awakened you from your stupor and your slumber to show you the real nature of an enemy, to show you the real nature of the battle you were in, well, then it doesn't make any sense to go back to your stupor. Live wide awake now and respond. April 6th, 1917. You remember when I said that there's a window of time that's the climax of the war? A lot's happened in there that I haven't even talked about yet. February 1st, the releasing of the unrestricted U-boat warfare. April 6th, 1917. Did I say February 1st or February 6th? I don't know what I said, but February 1st, 1917 to April 6th, 1917. On April 6th, America declares war after Woodrow Wilson, the pacifist, signs the joint resolution of Congress. Everyone is in agreement. We have been awakened, and let's not go back to sleep. Let's exercise the Meginomai too. You see, in our lives, we have been awakened. And the fact that God's grace has increased even in the midst of our rubble, even in the midst of our boneheaded decisions, our fumbles of the ball, the fact that God's grace has increased... Do not take advantage of that and just receive this wake-up call and then go back and live this way. Live wide awake. There is an enemy and he wants to destroy you. Don't make peace terms with him. You have been given a victory at that cross. Wield it. Use it in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. Grace has been given that we might be awakened. Now we must aggressively act. We have a job to do on this earth. We have been stirred from our slumber. Those of us that just want peace, 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 when there actually is no peace on this earth. You see, there is a great war taking place, and it is far greater than World War I and World War II. It is the, the amount of death, the death toll, what were we saying, 150,000 daily that are dying and going uh, to hell? That's a very, very serious war that we are engaged in. 
And when we awaken from it, we need to engage and act aggressively. Wilson was awakened. It took quite a bit, and many of us would acknowledge that. However, it also took quite a bit to get us to wake up to. So let's engage. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your way. We thank you for your manner. We thank you that where there is sin, your grace abounds. We thank you for that personally in our life where there has been failure. Lord Jesus, your grace has superseded it. Lord Jesus, but I pray that even in this world where we see sin abounding, I pray, Lord Jesus, that that grace would much more abound. Come, Lord Jesus, come and deliver your people. Strengthen your church. Awaken us for such a time as this. Revive us, Lord Jesus, now. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.